Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, there's been a lot of discussion over the last 24 hours about what's been happening in the Windsor area with, of course, the Ambassador Bridge. Now, for the latest on that, we are joined now by Global National reporter Sean O'Shea, who is in Windsor. Good morning, Sean. Good morning, Simi. Okay, where are you and what's happening? I'm right on the end of the Ambassador Bridge on the Canadian side, so I can look out and about a kilometer away is the end of the bridge. This is at the point beyond which trucks would normally have passed the Canadian Border Services Agency and be on their way to continue their journeys to make their deliveries into Canada. But for the last three days now, uh, the Canadian side of things are all shut down. No trucks are allowed to get into Canada. And in the opposite direction, there's only one lane. So trucks going into the United States are also being significantly delayed. Okay, so that was a real flashpoint, I feel like, because that, that really caught a lot of people's attention when that started to cause problems, didn't it? Well, this is such, to me, this is such an important bridge because roughly 30% of all the commerce, truck commerce between Canada and the United States goes over this one privately owned bridge. It's significant. Fuels Southern Ontario, uh, you know, factories and auto parts and, of course, fresh produce and just about everything that makes its way into Eastern Canada comes through here and also into the other parts of the country. So they picked a big target and with very few trucks, there's only about 40 or so trucks and I'm not talking big rigs. There's half a dozen big rigs, a lot of pickup trucks, cars. There's not a significant number, but their, their size is sufficient to be able to shut this down and the police are not doing anything to try to reopen it, not at this point. Really? Okay. And so why this particular bridge? Is it because it's so significant? Absolutely. Um, you know, there, there are a number of bridges in Ontario. This is the big one. This is the big Canadian border crossing. Uh, the Niagara bridges are significant as well, but nothing quite like this. Uh, this really is, is the route for the auto parts trade and so many other things. So they picked the big one. The alternate bridge down two hours from here at Sarnia, Ontario, um, is a smaller bridge and many of the trucks have gone there, but they're just not able to handle it. Uh, I was talking to one of my NBC reporter colleagues in, in Michigan yesterday. Uh, he told me last night that the, the lineup to get into Canada was 15 or more kilometers long. Wow. It's just not sustainable. Okay, so is that just the status quo then? You mentioned that on the Windsor side, police aren't really doing anything. What about the other side? No, police aren't doing anything. Really, this is a Canadian problem and uh, a Canadian policing problem. And I talked to officers off camera yesterday who said that they weren't really equipped to do anything. There was a local Windsor Star newspaper reporter who who wrote about the fact that there was a, uh, an effort to tow away one of the smaller trucks. And when the tow truck arrived, he said that people got out of the... Uh, their vehicles with tire irons that quickly ended so the idea of trying to require people to leave at this point doesn't seem to be on the books and you know at this time of the morning people are just getting up and they're they're out making breakfast and we had the horns honking here earlier and it looks like this is going to be day three of what we've seen since monday okay is this already having an impact on trade sean 
Well, it's hard to say because you know, so many items that move across the border are time sensitive, but I don't think we'll really know. We haven't heard about factories having to close or cut shifts or anything yet. But if this goes on for a day or two more, I think that's quite possible because so many items that come into Canada, and by items I mean machinery and parts and all of the all of the machinery that drives trade, I mean they can't they can't continue to function if they don't have those goods. And this this bridge is vital to that. And if if it doesn't reopen, we're going to have some serious problems. I think. Okay, so is it just a waiting game now? What are politicians saying at this point? Well, politicians all said yesterday in Ottawa that something has to be done. They want uh, a peaceful resolution. Um, uh, the local Chamber of Commerce, the Canadian Chamber of Commerce, um, the owner of the bridge, they all want it reopened. But it seems at this point that, that they're powerless to figure out what that what that's going to entail. Um, the, some of the truckers and some of the protest organizers want to negotiate uh, with the federal government. They're not having any of that. So it's hard to see as of Wednesday right now where this is going to go. But, but businesses are saying this is not sustainable and this thing has to be fixed somehow. Now, Sean, I know that you've you know, spent some time there. Have you talked to the protesters? What's the mood like there? Yeah, we, we did yesterday talk to the protesters, and I must say that the mood here has been much friendlier toward the members of the media than in places like Ottawa, where we were last week, and north of Toronto and in Toronto, where there's a lot of hostility, threats. Haven't really seen that here, but the protesters we spoke to yesterday told us that uh, they feel absolutely justified in doing this. They feel that uh, considering what's happened in the last two years, the mask mandates, the vaccination mandates, those sorts of things, they feel justified in doing this, even if that means that some businesses and some people uh, will have their jobs affected and that there will be financial loss for other people. They said that's the that's the fact and they're going to continue to do this notwithstanding that. Is there an end game for them though? Because I mean mandates are being lifted in provinces right across the country so what what would make them pack up and go home? That's a very good question, Simi. There doesn't seem to be an end game. They're here to stay. They say they've got supplies. They've got their trucks running at all times. They've got lots of food. Uh, there's no shortage of, of supply. Uh, who's paying for this is still, you know, some source of, of question. But it doesn't seem like uh, those kinds of changes from province to province, whether it's, you know, in, in Saskatchewan or, you know, the changes that have happened out here in Ontario, really make a whole lot of difference. They're making their point. They're allowed to make their point. Nobody's moving them off of their point. And so for this time, they plan to stay. All right, Sean, thank you so much for the update. Thanks, Simi. Have a great day. This is Mornings with Simi. Is the key to making more EV batteries making them cheaper? And is the way to make them cheaper make them cheaper to process and have them right here in North America. Well, that's what researchers at UBC are hoping, and they are working towards that. And if they can do it, it is a game changer. There's a company now that's been formed by UBC researchers, and they've received funding to make cost-effective lithium. And this would be used for electric vehicle batteries and to address supply concerns. Let's talk more about this. Joining us is David Wilkinson, a professor and Canada Research Chair at UBC in the Chemical and Biological Engineering Department, and Saad Dara, who is a co-founder of Mangrove Lithium. Thanks to both of you for being here this morning. Thank Thank you for having me. Saad, let me start with you. Tell me about Mangrove Lithium. What is this? (laughs) Uh, Mangrove Lithium is a startup company. We formed uh, in 2017 after the work uh, I was doing with David, uh, David Wilkinson at UBC. 
uh, for my PhD, we are developing the we're developing a technology for the lowest cost production of lithium uh, lithium hydroxide or lithium carbonate um, from different assets around the world. Uh, but the technology is being developed in Vancouver, uh, and we look to bring it to commercialization over the next uh, year to two years. Now, David, tell me about this. How did this happen? How did you get to this point where you realize, hey, we're onto something here? Um, well, obviously, there's been a, a very large interest in uh, lithium-ion batteries, um, particularly with, you know, the um, the, the uh, net zero 2050, the, the move towards reduction of greenhouse gases. Um, so, you know, this is an, a very important area, and it's growing very, very quickly, Um I think um, the growth of these gigafactories, uh, which are enormous, they produce, each one produces about 500,000 Tesla cars uh, a year. And uh, we're trying, you know, the, globally, it's, they're growing those at about, uh, you know, 20 to 30 every, every year. So, the, you know, the demand on lithium is, is enormous. So um, it ha- has to be uh, dealt with in, in an environmentally responsible way. So these were some of the drivers for us, you know, moving, right. uh, you know, moving into that area. So what are the challenges then with using lithium? Is it the processing? Yes. Yeah, so in, in this case, it's the, uh, the processing, uh, reducing the steps in the processing, uh, making that uh, less expensive and, and requiring uh, le- less processing steps, and also the ability to access different sources of lithium uh, as, as well uh, to meet the, the demand requirements. So uh, the technology that we're working on um, addresses all of those, all of those uh, features. All right, Saad, how do you think that mangrove lithium can make a difference here? Um, absolutely. So... Uh, lithium is available from a lot of sources. Uh, the largest producers of lithium, uh, you may be aware, are in South America and Australia. Uh, the, the challenge is that uh, demand has grown rapidly. Uh, but what's, what that's meant uh, is there's not enough lithium to go into EVs. Uh, and we know that for that, uh, for the adoption of EVs, uh, that they're going to be limited by uh, lithium supply. Uh, the largest reserves of lithium that are in South America cannot uh, produce a battery-grade lithium hydroxide, which is one of the key materials that goes into it. Uh, and our technology offers the ability to allow them to do this at a very low cost, uh, at the lowest cost in the world, uh, but also to meet uh, specifications required for batteries. Uh, and so this technology basically unlocks the largest reserves uh, of lithium um, in, in the world, Uh, allowing them to uh, be able to service the market quicker, uh, allowing essentially uh, vehicle manufacturers to be able to manage the market risk in a single system. Okay, now that sounds impressive. So, David, how did this breakthrough happen? Tell me about the UBC role in this. Yeah, so uh, we we had this idea of of how, um, you know, how how to make this work using an electrochemical process, which basically uses electricity and the... the, and chemistry, um, and we first started off just trying it uh, in the lab with, um, you know, very simply actually with some Tupperware, just to see if some of the principles worked. And then um, we took that further in our labs uh, to a more sophisticated level, and and did a lot of the early uh, prototyping and demonstrating um, demonstration there. Um, and then that's when we realized that you know we really had had something that 
could actually be used in a number of different areas, not not just the, the lithium-based uh, area. It could be used in the mining industry, could be used in desalination, could be used... Uh, as we are now uh, for lithium, um, but the you know the demand for lithium, as Sad said, has, is really driving our work right at the moment. And something as simple as Tupperware helped you with this. Well, it got us started. <laughs> I know it sounds it sounds bizarre, but yeah, often uh, uh, you know ideas get turned into reality, starting with something very simple. <laughs> it sure sounds like it. Now, Sad, what are the next steps here? Because this sounds impressive, but how do you really take this global? Uh, well, there's a lot of work to do. Um, David mentioned the Tupperware cell, you know, but that was nine years ago. So we've been uh, working on this for a while. We had to start somewhere, and Tupperware was the first bit. I, also, to add to that, you know, I, we we looked at many things, and we uh, applied this technology to different problems, and eventually we, over time, came to the realization that lithium is the big market. Uh, with the funding that we've uh, closed on with Breakthrough Energy Ventures uh, and BDC Capital, we have a pilot demonstration plant in Vancouver, uh, to be more specific, in, on, on Anasis Island in Delta. Um, we're working on that. and We have customers uh, that we're testing with uh, on that plant. Uh, and the plan is from there to transition uh, the customers to a first commercial facility that we're building. Uh, and that will go online uh, probably early 2023. Um, that will link to much bigger modules that will that will be further out uh, in in the market uh, right. uh, globally. Where, where so do you see this going? Like, what do you see happening here? Uh, what do we see happening here? Yeah. We we see incredible growth for mangrove. We see uh, an incredible opportunity where the uh, the technology is going to be deployed. Uh, it first in North America. Uh, but we also see opportunities in South America and Europe. Uh, and we see that interest will be driven from uh, upstream lithium producers, uh, the large companies, but also right. from EV manufacturers. And we think that that will develop a local local battery supply chain that encompasses not just lithium production, but also cathode manufacturing, battery manufacturing, and EV manufacturing. So, David, let me ask you then, why hasn't somebody else done this before? Oh, that's it. That's a good question. Um, I think uh, re- really uh, for for Canada, uh, we we do have a bit of hi- history in lithium. We had a company called Molly Energy, which actually pioneered the first uh, metal lithium based rechargeable batteries. Um, but um, that actually that technology was ta- taken by a Japanese consortium and. Start basically was the basis for the development of the technology there. Um, I think I think we um, you know we realize the importance now of of lithium to the government plans to uh, reduce uh, carbon emissions in Canada, and it's a very it's a very important component of being on that uh, net zero path um, that um, you know that we we promised. Um, and moving Canada in that direction. So I think there's a realization of the importance of lithium in Canada. And uh, Canada actually does have um, quite extensive lithium um, reserves as well, or or resources, I should say. Um, And so if if we were able to access that here in Canada, that would also be very beneficial for, for jobs and our growth domestic product as well. So, you know, there's a lot of reasons why 
why it could be a very good thing for Canada and why we need to be working on it now. It's exciting stuff. Listen, thanks to both of you for joining us this morning. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. Best of (laughs) luck. That's David Wilkinson, who's the professor and Canada research chair at UBC in the chemical and biological engineering department. And Sad Dara, who's the co-founder of Mangrove Lithium. So every once in a while, something comes along right out of of research or whatever, and they think, listen, we're onto something here. And that's how they feel about this idea of making cost-effective lithium for use in electric vehicle batteries, helping North America get a more stable and complete supply. This is Mornings with Simi. We're hearing more and more about other provinces and their plans for removing health restrictions. Alberta and Saskatchewan announced their plans to end their vaccine passport system. In fact, Alberta's ended at midnight. Saskatchewan's is coming up on February the 14th. If hospitalizations continue to go the way that they are, both of those provinces foresee getting rid of most public health restrictions by the end of this month. You've got Quebec and PEI also starting to outline their plans too. So what about here in BC? Can we look ahead to say it's time to do this? Joining us now is Dr. Brian Conway, Medical Director and Infectious Diseases Specialist at the Vancouver Infectious Disease Centre. Good morning, Dr. Conway. Good morning, Simi. How do you rate things right now? Like, how are things going? I think we're, uh, we're in the right direction. We're heading towards a gentle summer. We need to be careful to not confuse politics and public health. But I think we'll get some good news next Tuesday But I'm keeping my eye on the ball. I'm looking forward to building slowly but surely towards a gentle summer. Okay, but what do you think about what's happening then in places like Alberta and Saskatchewan? Well, it's interesting. In Saskatchewan, you had the Premier saying that everything should be uh, wide open. And Dr. Shahab, the uh, Chief Public Health Officer, their equivalent of Dr. Henry, came on afterwards and says, you know what, keep your mask around, wear uh, you know, wear it, uh, wash your hands, being a little bit more cautious. I think the truth is somewhere there. Let's be positive, but let's be cautious. Right. In the UK today, they've also announced they're going to be doing away with all their restrictions at the end of this month. Is this, do you feel that there's this kind of momentum here? It's going to be hard to keep people focused on those. It really is. But I think if we hear enough good news next Tuesday from Dr. Henry, if we're allowed to have wedding receptions, gatherings after funerals, slightly larger gatherings in restaurants, indoors, and the like. And we maintain the passport for now. We maintain certain kinds of capacity restrictions. That might be enough for a made in British Columbia solution that'll keep us happy. It'll keep us from looking to to Alberta. It'll keep us focused on getting it right for the summer. Uh, looking at our hospitalizations right now, what is what are we at here? Like what I know because with testing we can't tell anymore, right? With how many cases there are because we've maxed out on our testing system. Yeah, I don't even bother looking at the number. We're doing less and less tests. We're supposed to be able to do twenty thousand. We're doing five to seven thousand. I mean, testing is 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 sort of off the board. We're not looking at that. Hospitalizations are still high. They'll start going down in a measurable way. I think what I'm looking for in the healthcare system is no more canceled surgery, shorter wait times for essential procedures for doctor's visits. That'll be a sign that we're really in the right direction and will set us up uh, going forward. So when you look at the numbers, and are you waiting for the evidence of that kind of, that we've rounded the curve, that we're heading on the downhill slide? That's exactly what I'm looking for. And I'm looking for Minister Dix to say, you know what, we've canceled zero surgeries this week. That would be a really 
positive thing for us to hear. It'll tell us that the healthcare system is beginning to function as it should. We're not there yet. Hopefully, he'll say this next Tuesday. When you see what's happening across the country, though, Dr. Conway, do you think that perhaps this is becoming more political than it had in months past? Oh, clearly. And I think, as I say, in Saskatchewan, you have nuanced messages coming from public health that isn't strictly disagreeing with the premier, but is saying, let's still be careful. I think we politicians, I listened to to, to Premier Kenny um, very much into the bravado. Let's open it up. We've ruined the province. You know, that's fine. But that's political. That's not public health. We won't do that. Okay, but like, won't there be pressure on politicians here in BC, given everything people's hearing in these other provinces? So if we give enough, this is what I'm, I'm trying to, to sort of hope for, is to say these are all the new things that we're allowed to do as of February 16th, and then potentially looking forward to reopening, let's say, Rogers Arena to full capacity for March 1st to match what's going to be done in Alberta. That's realistic. Whole, there's a whole spectrum of things between where we are now and fully open that make a lot of sense. And if we strike the right note, we might have good participation of the population of people saying, this is enough. Yeah, let's just do this. Made in BC. We're doing more. Let's have a good summer. Let's not make any mistakes here. You certainly describe it well. Dr. Conway, thank you for your time. Thanks for having me. Dr. Brian Conway, Medical Director and Infectious Diseases Specialist at the Vancouver Infectious Disease Centre. Give people a little, you got to give them something, ease some restrictions there, uh, lay it out for how people are going to go. Dr. Conway makes an excellent point. Rather than saying we want it all gone, is that what we're going to hear from Dr. Bonnie Henry and Adrian Dix this afternoon? Three o'clock is going to be uh, their press conference on that. And of course, we will have complete coverage for you. This is Mornings with Simi. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code POD. That's ShipStation.com with the code POD. One of the items that we heard in the throne speech yesterday had to do with some reorganization. It's where they're taking childcare and they're moving it from the Ministry of Children and Family Development to the Ministry of Education. All right, you may read that and go, well, it's not just a housekeeping issue. Well, no, it's actually much more than that. Advocates have apparently been pushing for this for more than 10 years. Why? What would be the difference here? Well, joining us now is child care advocate Sharon Gregson. Sharon, thanks for being with us. Always a pleasure, Simi. Why is this so significant? Well, it's significant because child care has not thrived in any other ministry. And for a long time, it's been in the Ministry for Children and Family Development, which sounds like a good fit, except that that ministry is really targeted for children and families who need extra targeted supports. Whereas in the Ministry of Education, where our elementary schools sit, we know that all families, wherever they live in British Columbia, and no matter how much money their mom or dad has, they're entitled to go to elementary school. And so that's the same kind of approach that we need, that universal approach for childcare, that all families have entitlement 
to attend quality programs um, that are affordable. And in BC's case, of course, and across most of Canada now, we're aiming for no more than 10 a day. Right. And so do you think the whole childcare had to get to be bigger before we could decide that, all right, maybe we need to move this over here? Well, we first started advocating for childcare to be moved to the Ministry of Education when we released the 10-a-day plan 10 years ago. And even before that, we said, you know, it doesn't matter which ministry you put childcare in, you just have to fund it properly. But wherever it was, it was never actually treated as a universal service that needed to be affordable and accessible to every community across the province. And that's really the approach that we have for our public education system. So it really does belong in education. And in fact, BC is one of the last provinces and territories to make this move. Um, Most other provinces have already done it years ago. Okay, so then Sharon, what do you hope this does? What will this change moving forward? Well, this starts to build childcare as a system so that we've got planning for where childcare programs are going to be built. It's not just sort of an ad hoc approach for whoever can um, get the resources together to, to build a childcare program. We, do, we need the kind of planning that needs to happen behind the scenes, funding so that childcare operators can have secure funding. And as the Lieutenant Governor said, certainty and reliability in childcare so they can reduce parent fees to 10 a day and importantly, improve the levels of education and the compensation for early childhood educators so they're not glorified babysitters, that we start to think of them as we do our primary education teachers. Uh, so this is about a different approach to, to system building rather than leaving childcare in the marketplace just for whoever can afford to buy it. And how would you rate BC's progress towards moving towards that? Well, they started in 2018, and there's been measurable progress, for sure. But the the situation was so bad, and they haven't moved quickly enough to our liking. Um, So measurable progress, lots more to do, and this is a fundamental step in the right direction. So we've got legislation now, we're in the right ministry, we've got federal funding, $3.2 billion to make this happen. So the stars are all aligned now for significant progress this year. So is there a time for a reassessment then to say, okay, we've achieved these goals now, but what happens next? Well, we have some benchmarks. So by the end of this year, so not some future date, but this year, average fees will be reduced by 50% for families. Uh, That is a huge undertaking. By um, April of 2026, fees will be down to 10 a day across the province. And importantly, there's a wage grid for early childhood educators being developed so to bring them up to, to decent wages and, and full compensation, as well as 30,000 new spaces will be funded. The money is there in the bilateral agreement for spaces in the nonprofit sector and the public sector to make sure tax dollars, taxpayers' dollars is built to build a, a public and nonprofit system. And clearly, I think a big difference here, Sharon, was when a lot of businesses got on side for this, don't you think? It has made a difference because the Surrey Board of Trade, for example, um, you know, their CEO recognized early on that when businesses need employees, those employees need childcare to be able to go to work. So it's an economic issue, but we don't want to forget it's also about what's good for kids. And so we need to make sure the system we build is high quality. And that means investing in the educators who work in our programs. Do we have enough people to do this work? Are we training enough people for it? No, we don't have enough people. And it's it's hard work and it's currently underpaid, under-resourced. And the COVID 
Of course, pandemic has made it very challenging to work with children who are unvaccinated. That's a scary prospect. And so we, that's why the development of a wage grid, of a compensation package, of supports for the sector is so important so that we attract new young men and women into the sector. We have student loan relief. We have laddering programs from high school to encourage people into the sector and then make sure we compensate them fairly when they get there. That sounds like that's a real work in progress, though, right? So how are we on that front? Um, Well, there are um, high school laddering programs, advanced placement programs that are expanding across the province. There are more post-secondary seats in public colleges and universities. But yes, I would be the first to say so much more needs to be done. Government's on the right track. Um, They're putting the policies in place. We've got funding in place now from the federal government uh, so we need, you know, full steam ahead um, by the government and moving to the Ministry of Education with Minister Whiteside in education and Minister of Child Care Katrina Chen, who's really committed. Um, you know, stars are aligned um, and parents really need to expect to see improvement this year in their fees. Educators need to see improvement in their wages or compensation and more spaces to deal with these waiting lists. So lots to do. That sure sounds like it. All right, Sharon, thank you so much. Always a pleasure. Take good care. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, whether you're following the Olympics this year or not, you can't deny the fact that the Olympians themselves are exceptional athletes. I mean, just imagine how hard you have to fight and work and train to be at the top of your sport in the entire world. Well, our contributor, Raji Sohal, has profiled exactly one of those Olympians. It's Patrick Chan. Good morning, Raji. Good morning, Simi. Yeah, so Patrick Chan now lives in Vancouver. Uh, He's a three-time Olympian. He brought back medals from Sochi and Pyeongchang in 2018. And he is adjusting because, as you know, the Winter Olympics are happening right now. These are the first Olympics that Patrick is sitting out on after his retirement. Um, So what do you do afterwards as an Olympian? Um, It's been a few years for him since retiring from figure skating. He's become a new dad. His kid's a four months old now. Uh, so he's devoted to that. But he also, he picked up a brand new career in a totally different direction. It's been, it's been quite a roller coaster ride. Um, you know, the, the pandemic really changed things around for me um, in terms of career. Typically, you know, as figure skaters, we retired figure skaters, we, we tour around Canada skating in, on Stars on Ice or even going to Japan to do skating shows. Um, it's such a great way to, to travel and, and make a living and, and have fun. Um, but unfortunately, all of that got kind of shut down. So I kind of took that time to really change, think about changing careers and where, what career did I want to do? And um, yeah, so I, I went ahead and, and did my real estate license here in Vancouver at UBC just to kind of keep myself the mind busy, kind of keep the mind sharp and not get into too much of like a, I guess, a COVID depression. Um, obviously very different from skating. So for any athlete that's transitioning career-wise, and it comes with a bit of a identity crisis moment. I've, I've had those plenty of times. And did you know, Patrick, to anticipate the identity crisis that comes after being an Olympic champ? To have it happen this early <laughs> after my, my retirement. Yeah. Um, you know, typically skaters who if you take you know jamie and david or 
Kurt Browning, you know, I mean, Kurt Browning still skating, right? So um, there's there's some skaters that skate for, for years. And I was kind of hoping to, to maybe skate a bit more, like another three years um, and and take that time to kind of figure it out. So it, it just happened all so, so much faster. It was hard to prepare for it this this quickly. And so I had a lot of doubts as to even, you know, wondering if, the real estate path is the right one because I kind of just jumped right into it um, because I just wanted something different and something, a new challenge and to keep myself just busy and um, keep the mind kind of working. <laughs> That's so interesting there, Raji, you're talking to Patrick Chan. I was thinking of Brian Orser too, because Brian yeah. Orser was a very great Canadian skater. He was a silver medalist in 84, 88. He was a world champion. He's still in the business, yeah. right? He's training figure skaters today. Yeah, most of them stick around. They stay in the business. They start up schools. They become coaches. Uh, Patrick Chan, um, there. You know, we had we ended up having a really long conversation. He was uh, strolling his new baby for oh, a walk, so trying to get him to sleep. Adorable. Um, but he is keeping really busy with this new career of being in real estate. He didn't want to go back into figure skating. The, the world of figure skating unless he was himself competing. He said there's so much pressure also on coaches and coaches with a big name. There's so much expectation that they're going to produce the next big skater. So he wanted to just avoid that world uh, entirely in terms of a career. And this is, like I said, Patrick's first Olympics that he's missing since retiring from figure skating. But he has major love for figure skating, which a bit biased here, but I think that figure skating is the best winter sport to watch. I think it's the drama. <laughs> there's there's a lot, always a lot of drama in skating. There's um, there's a lot of I think the audience can't help but participate in in the um, kind of the judging um, and like opinions and who you think is better and who you think skated uh, performed the best. Um, there's so many aspects of skating that make it interesting. Like you don't just have the technical, the athleticism, which is the jumps and the spins, but you also have kind of the artistry and there's no other sport that really brings kind of the ba ballet kind of side or the artistry side into the sport. In the winter sport realm, it's it's just so unique because, yeah, you just have somebody who's, first of all, very vulnerable. It's a very vulnerable moment to be on such a large surface, um, such a large stage um, all by yourself um, or with your partner. So it's a very intimidating and you can almost like the, 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 the emotion and the anxiety or the, the nerves are all, it's quite palpable, I think yeah. for the audience. So I think that's what makes it very, like it draws people in. Cause you're just like, Oh my God, are they, they're going into the biggest jump of the, the program. Are they going to land it? Are they going to fall? And, and there you go. It's all done in one second. So uh, it's quite, quite wild. It's a, it's a very, um, yeah, unique type of sport to witness. What's it like for you to follow along now at home this week? It, it's, it's challenging. <laughs> um, you know, I'd be lying if I said it, it's, it's, uh, it's totally fine. And I am, I'm, I'm enjoying it. Um, there's, there's obviously emotions that this is the, the first Olympics that I'm, I'm not there and I'm not a part of, and I I've been there. So I can almost, I know everything that's going on, but I I'm watching from, you know, my couch. So it's, it's very different. It's a very, uh, it's an emotional moment. It's, uh, it's a mixed with, um, you know, a bit of fear of missing out feeling, um, mixed in with, uh, just joy for, or, or just happiness of having accomplished what I accomplished. Cause 
watching it now, I'm just like, oh my God, how do these people do it? Like, how do you skate under that kind of pressure? Um, because when you're, when you're there, you're just in such a zone and you don't really appreciate like how, how big of an event the Olympics are and how much pressure and expectation there is. And so it, it's, it's a, a mix of relief and also a mix of um, just like a bit of like, oh, I, I do miss the competition. I miss competing. I miss being in the best shape of my life and um, and having all these tools, these cool skills that I had and um, and be performing on the biggest stage against some of the best in the whole world. Like there's no there's no competition like it. So and I'll never probably compete at a level like that ever again. So I, I just miss um, if anything, I just miss and I'm sad because I missed the competition. That's retired figure skater Patrick Chan talking about how skating was his entire identity uh, oh. during the Olympics and whatnot. And then boom, now he's retired and he's got to find out what to do with life after the sport.